Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. How do they do it? Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes. And every month they deliver them to your doorstep. Katie. Hi, Olivia. Today, we are going to talk about one of the most powerful and important and effective activists of the 1960s. Ooh. So I would envision a hippie. San Francisco. Flower children. We have yeah. long hair and right. not much bathing and yeah. liberal politics and rock and roll. Yeah. Woodstock. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The woman we're talking about today is named Sybil Stockdale, and she is in just about every way possible the exact opposite of everything we just Ah. said. (laughs) Cool. She is a conservative Navy wife, Mm. well-dressed, decorative in the background, perfect military wife. Wow. And she will become one of the most fierce forces to be reckoned with. Mm. The group she is advocating for and with mm-hmm. are very, very much not at home in the hippie flower child movement. Huh. Because Sybil Stockdale is the leader of a group of military wives, the National League of Families, who got their POW husbands out of North Vietnam. Whoa. I had never heard any of this story. Yeah. And it is one of the most under-recognized acts of female political activism and will, I think, Mm. that I've ever heard of. Wow. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating Women You've Never Heard Of. So, to learn more about Sybil Stockdale and this remarkable group of women, I talked to Heath Hartage Lee, who is the author of a brand new book called The League of Wives. My name is Heath Hartage Lee. I'm a historian and a curator, and my latest book is called The League of Wives. It's about the courageous wives of American prisoners of war and missing during the Vietnam War. I'm really thrilled to be on the podcast. It's a wonderful book. It's a remarkable piece of history, but it's also just fantastically well-written, so compelling. We cannot understand the Vietnam War without understanding these women and what they did. Hmm. I found this story through my first book was Winnie Davis' Daughter of the Lost Cause. It was about um, Jefferson Davis's daughter who 
tries to escape from the Confederacy in, in different ways and ultimately fails. So I spent a lot of time at Virginia Historical Society researching this. It's in Richmond, Virginia. It's now called the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. And the staff said, we have got some papers that you should really see. And these were the papers of Phyllis Eason Galanti. Phyllis happened to be a good friend of my mother's. And um, Phyllis was a prisoner of war and missing in action activist, like big time, nationally known. She was known as Fearless Phyllis all across Virginia. Phyllis's husband, Paul, had been shot down in 1965. And she spent tons and tons of time advocating for Paul, trying to get him out. Her papers, when I looked at them, it was this epic story, treasure map, roadmap, really, of, of where to go, who to talk to about the Vietnam POW MIA issue in a group called the National League of Families for American Prisoners and Missing in Southeast Asia, which was not founded by Phyllis. She was a very important national leader in the movement. It was founded by a woman named Sybil Stockdale. And through these archived papers, she uncovered this remarkable network of stories hmm. and the leader of this movement, Sybil Stockdale. Hooray for archives! <laughs> well, Heathley very much agrees with you on that. It's still so crazy to me that people think history is boring and archives are boring. <laughs> archives are sexy. There's all kinds of like juicy, <laughs> delicious stories like why would you not? I mean, I just love to go in there and just wallow around in all the papers because they're just yummy. So we're going to 1965 okay. to meet Sybil Stockdale. Sybil Stockdale was the wife of the top-ranking naval officer held as a prisoner of war in the infamous Hanoi Hilton, the ah. t torture prison where so many American airmen were kept prisoner. Wow. Most of the prisoners of war held by the North Vietnamese were airmen. They were pilots, Navy pilots, Air Force pilots who were shot down. Hmm. So before we get to specifics, I asked Heathley to give us sort of an overview of the Vietnam War so we have the context and the basic understanding of where we are and what's going on, why the U.S. is involved in this war at all, as much as anyone can understand that. Vietnam was a colony of the French. The French come in, they try to run the country. The Vietnamese want their independence. And by 1954, the Vietnamese have kicked the French's butts and kicked them out. Um, the Battle of Dien Bien Phu in 1954 is a bloody defeat for the French. Then the Americans come in for round two. As Americans, we, we have a trait of thinking we can always fix things and we know what we're doing. Right. So we decide to take on land war in Asia, which is always a, a bad idea. We come in, <laughs> we try to do better. We fail miserably. So after 1954, Eisenhower comes up with something called the domino theory, which is that if one country falls to communism, so may the others around it. So that's our justification for getting into Vietnam. And Vietnam at that point has been divided into the North and the South. Ho Chi Minh is the communist leader in the North. We have the Emperor Bao for a very short time in the South, who was really controlled by the French. And then Ngo Dinh Zem comes in, and he is our, quote, ally for a while in South Vietnam. Later, 
for various reasons, we, we turn against him and then he is assassinated. So it's kind of a mess, but the South is more of our, our ally. They are the ones that are westward leaning, the North are the communists. The first POWs are taken in 1964. Sybil Stockdale's husband is shot down in 1965. Now, at this point, the Johnson administration has a very strict policy that if your husband is taken prisoner, you can tell your immediate family what has happened and absolutely no one else. Whoa. So all of these women whose husbands have been shot down and are missing or are they know they're being held prisoner are not able to tell anyone. They're not even supposed to tell one another what's going on. Wow. There are good reasons for this at first, but this war is different than the Korean War and World War II because the Vietnamese are, are in this prisoner business for the long haul. In the end, they end up keeping some prisoners for as long as eight years. In previous wars, the prisoners of war were not kept nearly as long, so it might, it would have been difficult, but it was more possible to not say anything. And the fear was that you would compromise their safety. In Vietnam, the bigger fear is that it might derail negotiations with the North Vietnamese if we embarrass them by admitting that they had prisoners and they weren't accounting for the missing. And, and as time goes on, they were torturing these prisoners and mistreating them. It's just simply impossible to keep this news secret for that long. Mm -hmm. But the Johnson administration is adamant that it would derail negotiations with the North Vietnamese if they were embarrassed. Oh, okay. For many, many years, most Americans didn't even know that U.S. pilots were missing. Wow. So obviously this is a completely impossible situation for these wives of these men. Yeah. So the wives know this is impossible. And after a couple of years, Sybil Stockdale organizes something called the San Diego League of Wives. These wives are prisoners of war and missing wives. They come together and they start organizing. What do you think Sybil Stockdale saw the purpose of this group as at the beginning? And how did that change? I mm. mean, did she envision this when she started as this is going to be a political action group? Or did she really see this at the beginning as more of a support group that becomes something new? And that's an excellent question that no one has asked. And, and I think it's important <laughs> because I, you, I've not gotten that one yet. And I think that's really, it's a great question because Sybil, no. I mean, at the beginning, it was truly, it was like a therapy group for the first whole year. Mm. There was no organizing. There was none, none of that stuff going on. It was like they were going through the Kubler-Ross stages of grief together as, as a group. It kept mm. the structure of an officer's wives club group where they met monthly and then weekly, but they start talking to each other and realizing that they know more than anybody in the government or even sometimes in the military knows about the prisoner's situation. And that is because some of them are coding secret letters to their husband. They're under the auspices of naval intelligence. All these Navy wives are coding letters and they know from the letters that their husbands are being tortured, mistreated. So they're not observing something called the Geneva Conventions of War, which are just the rules of war that everyone, including the North Vietnamese, has signed on to honor. 
she always knew this needed to be nonpartisan, nonpolitical, so it could be inclusive. So the, the point was to unify together as a group to get the guys out. They were humanists. They weren't political activists exactly, but it, but it becomes like a political action group. But I, I definitely don't think there was any long-term plan to become like a political action group or famous diplomats and, and covert operatives. It all just, it, it happened because it had to. And the goal was always to get their husbands out. These women are having to watch the media explain on television that the prisoners are being well-treated, that all of the rules are being upheld. Yeah. They are the only people who know that this is not true. How do they know? They are sending coded letters to their husbands and receiving letters back that are directly contradicting not only what these men are being forced to say publicly on television or in reports, but what the government is telling them about their husbands. Whoa. They're telling their wives, we are being tortured. We are being held in solitary confinement. Oh my gosh. And these, these women realize we know more about what is going on with our husbands than the government does. Wow. And they're not even allowed to talk to each other. So the prisoners, many of these prisoners are not allowed to speak to one another at all. And if they are seen communicating with other Americans at all, they're tortured and punished. Oh my gosh. So these men create this elaborate system of tapping where they can tap on walls or even just tap visibly with their fingers when they can see one another but not speak. Wow. Sort of a modified Morse code. So they would come up with these modified systems wow. of how to communicate with one another and how to communicate with people outside. Mm. So this is when Sybil Stockdale particularly realizes, I have to go public with this. Mm. I have to. Mm -hmm. No one is going to listen and no one is going to do anything. And they're realizing now the government is not actually trying to get their husbands out. They seem to be regarding these men as just collateral damage and have given up on them. Yeah. The biggest ally and tool that they have is the media. So Vietnam is the first television war. You're seeing everything, all the bloody, horrible battles, the body counts every day on the nightly news. And unlike the government that doesn't know how to utilize this new technology yet, the wives get it. They harness TV and the newspapers and magazines to tell their story. They're very appealing subjects. These women immediately grasp the power of that mm. as this narrative form. Mm. They realize very quickly, if we make a, a scene, it will get on TV. Yeah. <laughs> so foreshadowing the whole of the 21st century so far. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Symbolically, you're really stunned by that juxtaposition. You know, it isn't like the hippies, you know, on the mall protesting, which is expected. These are the very people you expect not to break the rules that are like breaking the rules and burning stuff and just freaking out. And it's it's awesome. It just creates a real magnet for the media to, to report on. To understand how extraordinary of a step this is, 
we need to understand the culture of military wives Uh at this point, especially officers' wives. Right. These rules are not unspoken rules. They are literal rules. There are manuals for military wives laying out what you wear, how you speak, how you throw a dinner party, Mm -hmm. how tall your heels can be. How you sit in a chair. Exactly. What kind of lingerie you should buy for your honeymoon. Wow. Very specific guidelines. Wow. For these women. And the entire goal is to turn yourself into a silent, supportive, decorative object Mm -hmm. that emerges when it is time to throw a party or attend a ball. Yeah. And help support your husband's career by being perfectly beautiful and turned out and conservative and silent and supportive. Yeah. And then disappear again. That these women decide to go to the media and make a scene and (sighs) defy the government's policies on silence? That's astonishing. And that's why I think it was so remarkable that these wives are like, forget it. We're, t- we're throwing these on the bonfire. We're done with this. Because they realize they are of no use when they're in that kind of a, a situation. And, and all the stuff about what you should pack or which shrimp fork you should use <laughs> is really not at all useful when you are coping <laughs> with tragedy. How do you perform a rescue mission? It's not going to work with a shrimp fork. I kind of talk about them forming their own rules, their own protocols that go against all their training. So it was not only brave, it was really a leap of faith because they were also worried this would hurt their husband's careers. And in this scenario, nobody knew what to do. There was no guide. So that's why I found them doubly ironic because there was just nothing in there about prisoners of war, even though this had happened before. It's almost like a willful denial of that. The worst thing you can do as a military wife is hurt your husband's career. Mm-hmm. And that in order to save their husband's lives, they have to do exactly that. And in this time of societal upheaval, right, they're right in the middle of all of this. They're right in the middle of the anti-Vietnam protests and yeah. Woodstock and the civil rights movement and the women's lib movement mm. and Everything is being turned upside down all around them. Yeah. And even though they are philosophically removed from almost everything that those groups are doing, Mm -hmm. those things have to inflect in what they're doing. They see the effectiveness of this kind of public performative action. And even though Sybil Stockdale especially really resisted the idea of needing to organize because organizing is those people. Yeah. Organizing is the hippies in the park. Right. I'm not that at all. But they finally realized we are never going to get someone to listen to us if we don't do this. And boy, do they know how to put on a performance. They collect 750,000 letters of protest against the mistreatment of these POWs and take them to the North Vietnamese embassy in Sweden and dump them on the front porch. Whoa. They do this in Paris, too, and the media loves it. It's a total frenzy. It's all over the TV. It's in the newspapers. So they are making 
the North Vietnamese and the communists look really, really bad, and that's the intent. They go ostensibly to meet with the North Vietnamese and the, their diplomats. They know they're not going to tell them anything. They go to draw attention. So I think using the media, using the letter campaign, speaking at the Kiwanis Club, the Rotary Club, and people go, oh my God, I didn't even know we had prisoners, which was often the reaction. So it's something the government, our government has done a really good job of sweeping this under the rug. So it's awareness raising, consciousness raising, media attention, all the things that we do now without even thinking about it. These women have figured that out. Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. If you're looking for great holiday gifts for the kids in your life, Girls Can Crate is the best way to build in women's history and one-on-one -on -one time together. This December, their crate features Ella Fitzgerald, a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two or three hands-on STEAM activities and more. And they have single crates, double crates for two kids, and even mini mailers available. The last day to order for the Ella Fitzgerald crate is the 15th of December, so don't wait to get the Ella Fitzgerald crate in time for the holidays. Check them out now at girlscancrate.com and make sure that you use the code HERNAME, all one word, to get 20% off your first crate on any order. So as opposed as they are to all of these other activist organizer groups, they know that they have to team up with them on some things. The anti-war activists, again, talking about women and, and propaganda and sort of spreading yeah. whichever way you go, you know, there are propagandists on the left and the right. You know, people always think about Jane Fonda. She was the one who said all this horrible stuff about the POWs, and yes, she did. She, she has apologized profusely many times for that, but she was not the one, according to my wives, that really posed any particular threat to them. The one that they tell me posed the big threat was Cora Weiss. Cora was a longtime peace activist, and I put that kind of in air quotes. There's a whole spectrum of these peace and anti-war activists, and I think many with very good intentions, and some where peace and anti-war kind of disguised other more sinister political motives that they had. In Cora's case, she had made a lot of trips to Vietnam and became very good friends with the Vietnamese women, was very sympathetic to their plight. So she basically, or a group she was in called Women's Strike for Peace, which was really purely a peace group where they you know, were anti-bombing in all wars. She comes from that group mm -hmm. and takes some of her WSP women that she's worked with and they go to Vietnam and set up this sort of alliance with North Vietnamese women and sort support the communist view of the war. Though she is an American, she really fights the war against the American side. So the way that she interacts with my women in the book, the conservative POW wives, is the mail service. The North Vietnamese that have the prisoners have pretty much at various points shut the mail system down. And the only person who they would let bring mail in and out of the camps ends up being Cora Weiss because she is really allied with the communist side. So the women in my book, like Sybil, Jane, 
uh, Phyllis, all of them, have to make a choice. Because the North Vietnamese trust her, they allow her really unprecedented access to these prisons and to the prisoners. In fact, they're often demanding that the prisoners meet with her. And if they refuse, they are severely punished. So these wives really, really hate Cora Weiss. However, Cora Weiss is the only person who can get mail in and out to these POWs. Oh. So they agree to let Cora Weiss carry their letters into Hanoi for their husbands. They have to make a deal with the devil. But they are absolutely using the devil to subvert her own agenda. Ah! So all this time, their coded letters are getting in and out through the enemy? She has no idea that she is passing these coded messages back and forth between the prisoners and their wives. She thinks she is in control of all of the information going out. In fact, Mm. she has no idea that she is the mule taking this classified information back and forth between these two parties. Yay! Which I love. (laughs) I love it so much. Wow. So this movement was in no way about empowering women. Yeah. It was about getting their husbands out. Yeah. But these women became empowered accidentally. Yeah. Through this entire process and became a force to be reckoned with when it came to activism, when it came to governmental policy making, when it came to spycraft, dealing with, (laughs) yes, spycraft and dealing with government officials on their own terms. Mm -hmm. They were so out of context that the men who had to deal with them had no idea what to do. And suddenly, large groups of these military wives are in Henry Kissinger's office Hmm. demanding that he accede to their demands. Mm -hmm. Like, just saying, you will do this, or we will go to the press and explain that you're not doing anything about them. And I bet there was an extra power in their tidy conservative appearance too like it's one thing for hippies to be saying the government isn't telling you things but to have exactly these well-dressed poised blonde middle-aged woman in a pink skirt suit yeah explaining that the government Mm. is lying to you yeah that's a whole different thing and she's the wife of a navy vice admiral whoa she is someone you have to listen to right They're the perfect figures to do this and to have authority and to have people listen. And it is under President Nixon. Now, Sybil has gone public as as the leader of this group. She goes public in 1968, as I mentioned, in the San Diego Union Tribune paper. Mm -hmm. Now, she doesn't talk about the torture, though. She talks about, in very general terms, the mistreatment and that the North Vietnamese are not observing the Geneva Conventions. But uh, under Nixon and some folks in the Nixon administration, new cabinet members, they support these women fully going public. They've got the women have already gone public without the government's okay support, whatever. Other women besides Sybil have gone public with their stories. But what the Nixon administration gives them is a platform, a, a really big government platform where the government actually supports that. 
he understands that far from the way the Johnson administration has seen them as a liability, these women are an asset. In the most divisive war in American history for a hundred years, everyone wants these men coming home. And he realizes we give them a platform and we're the good guys. Yeah, they could bring everybody together. Right. And so he does. And they do. They go public about the torture, and the wives are all over the place in Europe, in the U.S., talking about this. And that, number one, changes the treatment, the horrible treatment they're getting. John McCain told me this himself in an interview I did in 2016, that it was like a light switch going off in 1969. The torture stopped. They moved him from solitary to a group cell. And, and, you know, Ho Chi Minh also died. That was definitely part of why this happened. But at least as much of a factor was the embarrassment that the North Vietnamese were getting by being outed for this mistreatment. And that was all due to the wives and their just relentless efforts to publicize it. So he's told me that without these wives, many more men would have died. Oh, that is painful because so many years yes yeah that if the Johnson administration had understood these people were people not just collateral damage of war right they could have stopped this years before oh my gosh and what I find most wild about this these men had no idea why the torture stopped All they knew is that it stopped. They have no idea what their wives are doing. They don't understand anything that is going on at home. And as far as they know, their sweet little decorative wives are exactly the same as when they left. So in the end, it works. Finally, finally, these men come home. Some of them had been held for eight years. Oh, 1973, these men are returned. Many of them on crutches, barely able to walk. Gosh. Completely unrecognizable. And again, it, it just blows my mind to realize that these men arrive home and they have no idea what their wives have done. They don't know why. They are coming home. Boy, so those who were locked up for eight years, they, I mean, they must have not known anything about what was going on anywhere in the world. I can't even imagine. You are returning to an entirely different country than the one you left. Can you imagine 1965 to 1973? Yeah. The whole world has turned upside down. It's like being Rip Van Winkle, like you've been asleep for 10 years and you come back and they're like, oh my God, everyone's wearing mini skirts and go-go boots. And some of them think it's awesome and some of them are like horrified. So it, it, you know, there's a lot to process. And I think it took them a while to fully absorb that. And, And I was so happy to see that so many of these men later give their wives credit but it takes a while. I mean, they have a lot to process. And, and some of the guys, I, even now, I'm not sure they fully understand 
how over and above these wives went for them. And, that, and that's my hope with the book, too, that everyone will read it and realize, you know, what they did, often at great cost to their mental and physical health, a great sacrifice that they all made to get them out. Obviously not as bad as being tortured in the Hanoi Hilton, but <laughs> not comparing those two situations, but it's still a deeply traumatizing, mm -hmm. impossible experience that they've been through. Yeah. Some of these men are very loud in their praise of their wives and, and the sacrifices that they made and the, the things that they did. Jim Stockdale, Sybil Stockdale's husband, is one of those who is very upfront about mm. how important this work was that she did and what a difference it made. And in fact, the Stockdales wrote a book called In Love and War, and it is a memoir of the war shifting between their perspectives. So you are seeing Whoa. what's happening to him as a prisoner of war and what she is doing back home to try to bring him home and shifting oh, wow. back and forth through the time periods. Yeah. It's, it's brilliant. And it's Keith Lee believes it's one of the most important war memoirs that's ever been written. Wow. Not, not only for the content, but also for the shift in perspective that, yeah, that, you know, we have, we have tended to talk about war and think about war as a man's subject. It's about men. Men do it. Men are affected by it. And that our society is really bad at acknowledging how war affects women and children mm -hmm. and those not fighting. And that this memoir forced America to confront that, to confront the dual sides of the war experience and what is happening to the people who are left at home yeah. as these horrible things are happening to the soldiers overseas as well. Hmm. The government was very upset that they published this book and tried very hard to stop it. Interesting. But they did it anyway. Because Sybil had learned that you throw the rules out and they can't tell me what to do anymore. Yeah. But one of the weirder things that happens to Heath Lee at book signings and events now is people coming up to her and saying, my wife is in this book and I didn't realize what she had done i didn't i didn't know any of this stuff that she had done mm, any of this what <laughs> that they How? were just incapable of thinking about their wives in this way of thinking about women in this way and could not wrap their heads around what their wife had been doing while they were gone their husbands in, in some cases ex-husbands have read it and said i had no idea that you were doing. I mean, this is 50 years later and they still... Maybe you should have listened to us. Right, exactly. I mean, it's like <laughs> unbelievable just some of the stories I've heard. I'm like, well, thank goodness. I'm so glad they've read it. Now maybe they'll appreciate you even more, you know? And So I hope the book will really help them understand the breadth and depth of what these women did. Wow. That's bonkers. But also... Many of the women featured in this book come up to her and say, you know, I didn't realize what we did because everyone, you see your little part of it, mm. but you don't see the bigger picture. You don't realize how my work with this little branch of our group in Pittsburgh is feeding into the national work on this. And I think it's just so difficult 
without historical perspective, when you're living in the moment, it's crisis to crisis. All you are focused on is getting your husband home. You don't have time to sit and reflect on the historical importance of what you're doing. Most of them didn't know the whole story. It hadn't been pieced together. There were really no records kept. So yeah, they know their part. It was amazing. Like no one had ever put the whole picture together. And it was difficult because the National League that exists now had kept no original records. So I was really piecing together from different women's diaries and archives. And fortunately, a lot of women had kept minutes from the League meetings that I was Mm. able to meet. But I think this is so often the case on women's history. No one thought it was important enough to keep, which is horrifying. But, you know, you don't know history is happening to you when it's happening sometimes. Right. I don't think anybody had seen the full picture until the book was sort of put together and finished. So I'm I'm, wow. I'm proud and grateful that I was able to assemble most of the pieces, not all, but I, I felt like I got a pretty good overview of what was going on. This book has to be option for a movie, right? Like a ensemble piece. It's got to be a, it's going to come out in a year, I predict. Well, the good news is that Reese Witherspoon has already optioned the book. Oh, see? For a movie with her new production company. I knew it. So, hopefully, coming soon to a theater near you, The League of Wives. Awesome. Once again, it's all in how you tell the story. Yeah, it's such a fascinating and subversive history and a really wonderful story. And one that you can share with all of the people in your life who aren't interested in women's history, who Mm. believe that the subcategory of women's history is for women. Right. This might be the book that changes their minds. (laughs) Sneaky Christmas gift (laughs) opportunity. Huge thanks to Heath Hardage Lee and to Skip Brown at Final Track Studios for recording Heath Lee's interview. If you'd like to learn more about Sybil Stockdale, the National League of Families, and their work to bring back the POWs of the Vietnam War, visit our website at whatshernamepodcast.com for links to Heath Lee's books, resources, pictures, and more. Huge thanks also to our Patreon sponsors for this episode, Chantel Oliver, Mandy, Rob, and Virginia Booty, and Angela Daniels. We couldn't do it without our patrons. If you want to become a patron, visit our website at whatshernamepodcast.com and click Donate. And if you become a $10 supporter by December 1st, we'll send you all of our What's Your Name trading cards, including our Season 6 cards that are available only to our Patreon supporters, in time for holiday gifting. We've also got lots of other women's history merch that make wonderful holiday gifts on our website as well. Check it out at whatshernamepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. Music for this episode was provided by Josh Lippy and the Overtimers, Everett Almond, Dan Leibowitz, Sir Cupworth, Amanda Setlick-Wilson, and Jeff Kuno. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster-Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle. I bet nobody's ever asked a male historian why they keep writing about war. Oh, <laughs> no. I No, they ask them why they don't write about war. Exactly. More. Why are you bothering about this other stuff? Oh, yeah. And if you're a woman writing about war, they're like, what's wrong with you?